Jersey is the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. My name is Chris Gethard, and I'm lucky to be here hosting a podcast. That's a celebration of the much maligned state of New Jersey, a place where outsiders, frankly, just don't get it. But here, what we do is we celebrate every aspect of it, from the things on the surface all the way to those nitty-gritty things that you can never get to if you don't know this place and love this place and think about this place and if you're not completely fascinated by this place as we are. I've got an interview lined up today. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. First, I want to let you know that this week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Grit Refinery. You can go to gritrefinery.com. It'll take you right to their shop. Grit Refinery, at the end of the day, is this guy named Scott. He's a real fascinating dude, okay? He grew up in Somerville, lived down by the Jersey Shore for a long time. He applies his trade, and he works in the medium of concrete. And you can get a lot of cool stuff from Grit Refinery, okay? We're talking things as basic as a coaster set or a concrete bagel that looks very real or a concrete avocado if you're in the mood for a concrete avocado. Or you can go ahead and get a stool, or a table, or end tables, whatever you want. There's all kinds of great stuff there that Scott's selling, and it's uh, it's functional furniture. It's also art. He puts a lot of his heart and soul into it. Now, let me tell you, one of the items on there is a custom keepsake box, and my mind has been blown. Scott made me a custom keepsake box. This thing is like the most New Jersey-centric thing I've ever seen. It's got the weird New Jersey logo on it. It's got the hot dog Johnny's logo on it. It's got all kinds of stuff. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. He poured a ton of work into it. And you'll see that a lot of the items on uh, on greatrefinery.com say that, you know, when you order it, he wants to have a conversation, wants to have a little dialogue so that he might get to know you and personalize your item a little bit. Do I think he's going to put that much work into everybody's thing? He's going to personalize it to that same degree? No. But he goes. what he does, he goes ahead. He works with you to hear who you are, what you're looking for. He'll put some found objects into the items themselves. I mean, this is the type of thing where you go, it's furniture, it's also art. It's also uh, hatched from the mind of a beautifully manic madman who is compelled to make concrete bagels for your enjoyment. And that's the type of thing we can get behind here in this great state of New Jersey and this podcast called New Jersey is the World. I learned about Great Refinery largely because my friend Randy works with Scott. They've they've been best friends since growing up. You might know Randy uh, is a guy who uh, constantly gets sick and then his friends send him cameos for me. Randy's on his fourth round of uh, COVID right now. He's He's caught COVID four times. And he's vaccinated, but he still has managed to catch it four times. So much love to Randy. You know what would make Randy happier than anything right now? If you ordered one of the fine items at gritrefinery.com. And if you use the code New Jersey, you get 10% off. It's not a bad deal right there. You'll go ahead, you bump $3 off that concrete avocado's price. You go ahead, you knock a solid 70 cents off of that concrete coaster. That's right, the coasters are only 7 bucks, and they're cool. They're like cooler than whatever garbage ass coasters you got on your table right now so go to gritrefinery.com order some use that promo code leave a review so this thing starts to spread say new jersey is the world sent you we got to support our own support local artists support the homegrown people out here doing interesting and strange stuff and that is great refinery to a t interesting and strange and also honestly quite beautiful stuff And to quote Mike D, Mike D ordered some uh, stuff immediately. As soon as he found out about Grit Refinery, he said the words, this is a quote, you know I love little tables. And he ordered some Grit Refinery stuff right away. And if you listen to this show for five minutes, you know Mike D has the best taste out of all of us here. So if it's good enough for Mike D, certainly good enough for you. GritRefinery.com, New Jersey is the code, 10% off. Now, this is a very special episode. We're interviewing Joe Pompeo. Joe Pompeo is a journalist. Uh, if you look up Joe, you'll see a, a career that is uh, up and down the line, a very commendable career, a very respectable career. And right now it's hitting a high watermark. Joe's just published a book called Blood and Ink. It is a very in-depth look at one of the most famous murders in New Jersey history. This is the Hall Mills murder, which happened in the 1920s, just outside of New Brunswick. You maybe have heard whisper of this along the way. 
Um, maybe you've heard of the pig woman who was a prominent part of this experience. We talk about all that. And, you know, one of the things we talk about, true crime is everywhere right now. True crime is like a sensation. And New Jersey has always had a presence in true crime. I mean, you look at The Watcher on Netflix right now, and The Good Nurse is about uh, Charles Cullen, who's from West Orange. So Jersey, weirdly, always has its fingerprints on true crime. What you might not know is that a lot of historians point to this case as the birth of true crime as tabloid entertainment. Um, Joe gets into it a bit, talks about how certainly newspapers always covered crime, but that this one threw fuel on the fire in a way that is modern. There's a through line from this case right up to every true crime podcast out there today, uh, let alone things like the OJ trial and the Menendez brothers and all these cases that come along every few years and capture our imagination. This one is the OG. Talk all about it and so much more. It was uh, um, a gruesome experience and yet a pleasure to hear more about this infamous um murder it's fallout it's trial the bizarre nature of all of it joe pompeo blood and ink everybody get a copy tell them new jersey is the world sent you because look at the end of the day this is just you know another guy who went to ruckers late 90s getting into punk and hardcore and uh, doing the thing doing the thing it's a burton county native at the end of the day anyway joe's a great guy it's a great book blood and ink enjoy the interview everybody Hi, everybody. Chris Gethard here. Very excited to be here at uh, this this episode of New Jersey is the World. We have an interview happening. I'm hoping that my neighbor stops mowing his lawn. That's one of my great wishes in life is that you don't hear the faint hum of lawnmowers. But hey, that's what happens when you work from home in the suburbs. Um, so excited to be talking about something that I've long been fascinated by. Uh, luckily, a book has come out on this matter that I think everybody's going to be very excited about. It's called Blood and Ink. The author, Joe Pompeo, is with us today. Hi, Joe. How are you? So, uh, Hi, Chris. It sounds like you are a, uh, a, a longtime fan of the Hall Mills case and for, from your uh, introduction there. Well, I worked at Weird New Jersey for a, a bunch of years in my of course, yeah. early 20s, and there's so much to discuss the Hall Mills murder, of course, we have to touch upon the pig lady as part of this because the pig lady not only is so bizarre in her own right in terms of this case, but the legend has lived on through sort of urban legend. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. And for anybody not familiar with the Hall, Mill, the Hall Mills murder, I believe that's the correct pronunciation. I always mix it up, Hall's Mill, Hall Mills. Um, I want to get the basics from you, but before we even get to the case itself... One of the things that I think is very cool about your book, about it coming out right now, is that true crime has become this sort of phenomenon in pop culture. I mean, you look at Netflix, the whole Q, pop culture. You look at what's huge in podcasts the past few years. It's true crime, true crime, true crime, right? Everything is true crime. And this blending of true crime into pop culture is this weird phenomenon. It's kind of dark. I don't know that it's totally healthy as a society to be this obsessed with death and crime and murders, but we are. And you could argue that it starts right here. It starts in New Jersey. If you told a lot of people it starts in New Jersey, they might go, oh, you must be talking about the Lindbergh baby. No, we're not. We're talking about this far more obscure murder that you've written the book Blood and Ink about. So I'm sure you've thought about that. And do you think it's accurate to say that this might be the birth of, of crime as tabloid entertainment was this case? You know, I think this case was certainly the, I, th- I think there's an argument to be made that this was the biggest, you know, murder sensation of the roaring 20s, the 1920s, which was this decade where there was tons of murder sensations, right? And the Lindbergh case, that happens like a few years after, in 1930, early 1930s. And that became such a huge story that, and, and one that happened, you know, fairly close to where the Hall Mills case took place. I think it kind of like, in terms of famous New Jersey historic crimes, Lindbergh just kind of like eclipsed it. And I think that's part of the reason why people haven't heard about as much about the Hall Mills case. But I think that people have been obsessed with murder and mayhem for as long as they could read. And I think that, you know, 
even in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, I mean, there was newspapers covering this stuff and readers who were obsessed with it and following every twist and turn. But I do think that the 1920s was a time, and this is largely because of the birth of the tabloid press back then and the way they could cover a story like the Hall Mills case, which is this murder, sex scandal. I mean, it has all these, these sensational lurid elements to it. And the birth of tabloid culture, you know, it, it kind of took... The, the true crime form and it turned it into entertainment. You were reading about, you know, these larger than life characters in newspapers that were, you know, smaller looking like magazines with these huge photos on the cover and these screaming headlines. And it was this new, it was this new medium that really treated the news in a way that was meant to entertain as well as inform. In the Hall Mills case, that was a, it was a huge story. It was, it was hugely wrapped up as my book explains in in the in the birth of the early tabloids in new york so i think there is an argument that there's a direct line from this particular case in new jersey to the true crime you know obsession phenomenon whatever as, as you call it today which is still you know about entertainment you know we're, we're, we're listening to these podcasts these netflix documentaries about you know people who have suffered horrible deaths there's nothing really you know fun or light about that and yet you know, these, these series, these productions, they entertain us. There's something about, you know, murder. And I think wanting to like understand that, that, and, and just, you know, a good mystery that, that drags people along. Um, so I do think that there's, I do think there's a through line. Um, and I do think since the Hall Mills case took place uh, right in the center of New Jersey, maybe you could make the case even that New Jersey <laughs> played a big role in the, uh, in the, at least in the history of, of, of the development of true crime. And I mean, you look at Netflix right now, you got The Watcher, everybody's mm -hmm. talking about. You got The Good Nurse, which is about uh, serial killer Charles Cullen, who actually grew up in my neighborhood in West Orange, lived around the block from is that my right? mom. Yeah, my mom, uh, my mom knew the, the family. They lived right around the corner. Um, so New Jersey's presence with true crime seems to be kind of intrins intrinsically tied in from start until present day. So for anybody listening who isn't totally up on this case... I mean, you are an authority. You've written the book. The bullet points that, that I know are you had a reverend, you had an affair, and you had them both get killed on a lover's lane, which I think is just outside of New Brunswick, right? Just outside New Brunswick. So it's in, it's, it's in Franklin, which is Somerset County. Right. Right over the county line between uh, New Brunswick and, and Somerset County. And those bullet points are intriguing, Sure. I'm wondering if you can give a little perspective, whether it was the times then or details of the case that go beyond those basic bullet points. That's certainly an intriguing murder. Why does this become sort of a national sensation? Because I have to say, like, a mysterious murder between two people having an affair is intriguing. It's also a bit of a trope, right? So why did this one catch on in the way that it did? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, since you kind of laid out, uh, you know, the, where this crime took place on this lover's lane, um, it's also important to note how the crime took place and the way the bodies were discovered and the way they were found. It was this utterly elaborate, bizarre, eerie crime scene. You had this man who was placed about a foot from this woman, um, and they were, you know, his arm was outstretched and her head was re resting on his arm and someone had put her hand on his thigh and there was a pile of, of, of papers between them, which turned out to be love letters and his calling card had been carefully displayed near his foot. Their, their clothing was like completely neatly laid out. People thought it looked almost like a mortician had done this. I mean, so it was this really like eerie tableau, um, the way the bodies were staged. And yet, also this like completely gruesome grisly scene because you know the, the guy had been shot once this is the rev the murdered reverend we're talking about the woman who was a, uh, a married um uh homemaker from his choir she had been shot three times in the face and her neck was slit and when someone took off her scarf it was filled with maggots i mean it was just really like the crime scene itself there was just it was such a spectacle that i think that's one of the reasons why for you know, any newspaper covering a murder story like that had, you know, that was kind of money, but also the fact that the people involved, you know, this wasn't just like two people having an affair. This was a prominent reverend from an Episcopal church 
um, in, you know, a pretty, uh, you know, it was at the time New Brunswick was like, kind of like a microcosm of a city, you know, microcosm of New York. You had Johnson and Johnson, you had Rutgers, this old historic college, and you had all this industry. It was, it was close to New York. It was only like about an hour as it is now. Um, back then, I think it probably would have, you know, been a pretty quick drive or train ride down from New York city to, to New Brunswick. Um, and this, you know, this, this family that the Reverend had married into, they were this really illustrious, wealthy, prominent, family um, with these ancestors that, you know, date back to the founding of the Republic and, you know, uh, you know, really just like well-known prominent New Jersey citizens, almost like Mayflower family sort of, sort of territory. So the fact that you had money, you have sex, you have people with money behaving badly, you have this, you know, really weird murder that, you know, is, is, is a, is a very deep mystery from the beginning. There's no immediate obvious, um, leads that are suggesting like, you know, this is, this is probably the obvious main suspect. I think all of those elements like kind of conspired to make this just a complete sensation at a time when people were just like gravitating towards stuff like this, you know, whether it was murder or scandal or whether it was like these other obsessions that you think of from the 1920s, competitive sports and boxing and Mahjong and transatlantic flight. I mean, it was just all this, all this, um, stuff people are obsessing over after this period of like the world war and all this dark stuff with a, a flu pandemic. I mean, I think that, you know, it was, it was a moment in time where you had masses of people that were like eager to, you know, just get lost in stories like this. And this crime in particular, I think between, given the people involved, the way it happened, it was just, you know, uh, they had all the makings of a good story and, and a good tabloid story. I mean, as soon as you say scarf full of maggots, I feel like, okay, I'm, that I certainly am starting to understand more. That's a lot for, for a, uh, for tabloid journalists who are finding that they have more and more free reign to get flowery with their language and gruesome in their depictions and descriptions. It sounds like a crime scene built for these guys to just sit there and, and, uh, really, chew there's just a lot to chew on right there it seems well and the other thing is too like you know they have you have these kind of bumbling investigators right because they're not equipped to to in uh you know deal with a, a crime of this nature in terms of like their forensic invest abilities or even their really investigative capabilities i mean just the the mag the, the neck is a really good example of this because there was no actual autopsy before the bodies were buried there was this like cursory morgue report that the coroner did because he's like, well, the prosecutor never told me to, to do the autopsy. And I thought that I wasn't supposed to. And the prosecutor's like, no, the detective was supposed to tell you. And it was like, so there was this also this element of these, like this kind of ham fisted investigation. So these bodies are buried without an autopsy. And, and the, the coroner's report notes like some, you know, a wound to the neck, but when they actually exhume the bodies, you know, um, for the first time a few weeks later, it's like actually her neck had almost been cut off. It was like, you know, there was, it was, it was severed so deeply. She was nearly decapitated. So, I mean, you know, even um, there's also this kind of comic relief in how, you know, you know, bumbling the investigation is. And um, there's also these other periphery characters that come into it. Like, like the pig woman, who I'm sure we're going to talk about. These just kind of there's these bizarro cast of characters that all, you know, come into this crime. You have, um, the daughter of the murdered woman, she's kind of this spunky, vivacious flapper who writes a, a letter to the governor of New Jersey at one point that gets printed in the newspapers. You have this like slippery private eye that's creeping around town. You have this curious weirdo brother of, of Francis Hall, the, 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 the widow who becomes the main suspect. I mean, it's just like you, you, you couldn't like make it, it's, you know, truth is stranger than fiction sort of thing. You could not ask for like a better cast of characters to um, fill a, a murder mystery with, really. I also I feel like the uh, bumbling investigators, I feel like, is key. Because when you have investigators that botch so much, this means anybody who buys a newspaper feels the right to start filling in their own blanks. And that sells papers, right? Like, hey, like now it's open to any theory you can come up with, which I'm sure just keeps people spending money on this because they want to keep guessing filling in these blanks as well. And right, an airtight yeah. case run by competent people probably doesn't have as much intrigue. Yeah, but when there's all this intrigue and gossip and stuff, and it is all spilling out from day one, the newspapers are just filled with like, you know, all these, you know, rumors about the affair and clearly all these people knew about it. And there's all these theories that are 
that are that are that are bubbling up and you know whispers of you know uh spies in the church who are intercepting love letters and you know this uh, you know, some couple that had maybe been on, been at, at the crime scene nearby. I mean, there's all that sort of stuff is is happening, and I think a lot of it's actually coming out of the people that are that are conducting the investigation and making its way into the press. But it just creates this like cauldron of of mystery and intrigue that, um, you know, people definitely, you know, lacking actual any actual progress in the case. It, this thing really pulled you along because you're like, you know, you're waiting for like something to to break. Um, it builds suspense. It does. It does in some ways, as you describe that, I'm like, oh, some of this stuff clearly wrote the textbooks that was even used in the OJ trial. As far as can we cast doubt on these investigators? Can we selectively leak things to the press? Can we get a popular dialogue going to try to define what the story is, despite whatever efforts are being made through official capacity? Um, I guess this is a, a playbook that's kind of as old, at the very least, as old as this case. Yeah, and I think that you know, the way that the that the public interacts and the media interacts with scandal and crime, in some ways, is probably not very different now than it was back then. It's just the mediums that have changed. You know, OJ was like a t- I mean, that was, that was a, really like a, a broadcast TV sort of phenomenon, right? I mean, we're probably about the same age, early '40s, and remember watching that that car uh, chase, you know, and. Um, I think that when the Hall Mills trial actually happens in 1926, that would have been like the equivalent of the O.J. Simpson trial of the day because you had more than 200 members of the press that descend on this small town in Somerville, New Jersey, which I know you guys have talked about on the podcast before. So maybe your listeners are familiar with it. And it becomes this complete media circus that the whole nation has its eyes on, except they're reading about it in the newspapers instead of on TV. Now, I also want to remind everybody... You're bringing up all this stuff, this intriguing cast of characters, these details, the crime scene, and there's probably a lot of people listening right now going, oh, that sounds so fascinating. Let's dive in deep on all that. And we will talk for a while more, but I also want to let everybody know if they really want to go in deep, the best way to do it, reminder everybody, Joe just wrote a book called Blood and Ink that has everything you're looking for and more, and it is great. You sent me an advanced copy and I've been going through it and it's it's awesome. And congratulations on publishing it. I know what a pain in the ass it is to get a book over the finish line. Thank you. And thank you for the, for the sales plug, but also I think you should read the book because it's so complex and the story is so complex. It's, it's hard to distill in the conversation like this. So, you know, um, yes, please buy my book, but, but also if you are curious, you know, you're going to get a, um, a much richer sense of how this thing unfolds from reading it in this organized way that I took four years to, to compose um, as, opposed, as opposed to our spirited conversation um, that we're having right yes, now. Yes. Our largely just shooting the shit convo yeah. here uh, as we figure it out. We've talked about her. She's been mentioned twice. She's it's one of my favorite phrases in New Jersey history. We got to, we got to talk a little more about the pig woman. Cause this has to be one of in a state that, prides itself on a lovable lineage of kooks characters. I mean, you grow up in Jersey. We all know every town has that one person who's kind of on the fringe, whether that's they actually live out on the outskirts of town being a weirdo or they are fringe in spirit. Like in West Orange, there were all these weirdos that were walking up and down Main Street. We all knew who they were. They all had nicknames and we were like, those are kooks. The pig woman has got to be one of the all-time Hall of Fame kooks in New Jersey history. And it's funny because I think that the mythology has, you know, there's also, there's a mythology about the pig lady. I've, someone, a friend of mine sent me an article from, I think it was from Weird New Jersey about yes. the pig lady, but it was like the, this pig lady legend of Hillsboro. Hillsboro, nearby. And it was, and it was I've like, fascinated by this. But it was something about like an axe murdering pig, pig lady. And I was like, is there some, did this somehow get, jumbled up because the, the the pig woman we're talking about her name is jane gibson she is she got that nickname this sort of pejorative moniker because that's what the newspaper started calling her when they when they learned about her she was she was a, a she owned a pig farm she, she farmed hogs and also and also grew corn um on this farm that was adjacent to this abandoned farm where the bodies were found. So in, in uh, Franklin Township, Somerset County, like on the edge of New Brunswick, which back then this was still all like rural farmland. She lived on, uh, I know you went to Rutgers. So like she lived on kind of what would have been the corner of, of, of Hamilton street, which runs, you know, into New Brunswick. And then it, it, you know, from Franklin Township 
In any case, she emerges at a point in the investigation in 1922, in the fall of 1922, where, where the, the, the detectives, the prosecution are kind of like at a dead end. They, they, there's so much pressure to you know, get some movement in this case from the governor of New Jersey, from the, from the newspapers, from the public, and they need something. And this, lo and behold, this woman emerges with what she claims is an eyewitness account of, of the murders that, that took place uh, at the murder night. And it's this wild story. She claims that she had been roused by her barking dog uh, outside around between nine and 10 at night. And she was, she was suspicious that someone had been stealing her corn. So she thinks, oh, the dog must have, you know, he must be alerting me to the thief. She goes outside. She sees some like guy riding a wagon down this, this dirt road and decides like, I'm going to follow him. She mounts one of her mules, her favorite mule. The mule's name is Jenny. She gets on Jenny. They trot along down this road. Derussi's lane. This is like the, this is kind of the lover's lane that, that we're talking about. And she follows this wagon. She, this, this putative corn thief all the way to Easton Avenue on the other side um, of, of, of Derussi's lane. Anyone who's listening who, who, who went to Rutgers knows these street names pretty well. When you're dropping and Hamilton Street and Easton Ave. Hamilton knows, Street and Easton Ave, yeah. I mean, I feel like every listener to this podcast is going, oh, I've been drunk right where they're talking about. Yes, probably a little farther down because this is like, you know, again, this is still the outskirts. But um, sure. uh, so she loses sight of this and then she turns around on Jenny. It's dark. She, she basically hears commotion and, you know, you know, it, it, under under the, the moonlight, or actually at this point, there wasn't a lot of moonlight. It was dark. And she hears uh, a woman scream and she hears gunshots. She hears someone yell out, oh, Henry. Um, crucially, the uh, the white, the rich wife of Reverend Hall had a, her, one of her brothers was named Henry. So that becomes a key detail. But anyway, she has this this wild tale, like, whoa, all of a sudden they have this eyewitness. And not only do they have an eyewitness, but she's this eccentric theatrical sort of like pioneer woman with this incredible life story that she starts telling about how she had run away from home and become a circus rider, a bareback rider in the circus. And um, immediately that the newspapers hear about her and they're like, there's a, a pig woman who's the, who's the eyewitness and they, they just descend on her farm. And sometimes she's hostile. She's like, you know, pulling out brandishing guns and telling them to stay away. And like you swatting the photographers away. And other times she just starts telling her stories clearly like, there's, there's evidence and suggestion that she was getting paid for some of, you know, for, to take photographs of her or to, you know, for interviews. Um, you know, she is, for a theatrical woman, she's getting this taste of fame because she's, she's, she's turned into this like national celebrity because again, everyone in America is following this story and suddenly you have this, this, the most wild character of the whole thing emerges to, to the extent that even, you know, in my, I, I cite this in my book, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was like working on The Great Gatsby at this time in some newspaper interview, like name drops the pig woman and her Jenny mule. You know, like it was like actual celebrities were paying attention to to the pig woman. And so, I, so well, back to your original point, though, I feel like I, so, you know, after my book came out, a friend sent me this thing about this pig lady of Hillsborough. And I was like, this seems like a different thing, but also like Hamilton Street, where her farm was, it, it does lead into Hillsboro, And it, it's like has the the pig woman legend become even bigger than, than the historical pig woman from the hall mills case. I wonder if, if, if you know anything about that from your weird New Jersey days. I, I remember writing about the Hillsborough pig lady. I remember us feeling like this has to be linked to this case. To the hall mills pig lady. Uh, I don't yeah. remember us finding the point of synthesis where it jumped because in Hillsborough, if I remember right, it's like an actual half pig, half woman that's yes, the woods, yeah, which is yeah. a different thing. But I always, and it, like you said, Hillsborough is not far, but it's, I think it's out on the old Duke estate, if I remember yes, right. It's correct. a road that cuts through the old Duke estate. And I always felt like my, my hunch is, and there, this may have been solved by Weird New Jersey subsequently. Um, it was many years ago since I worked there, but it felt like the pig woman from the murder case was such a character that that phrase pig woman lived on right in the same way that you know um like became a phrase akin to jersey devil or yeah, bigfoot yeah. like that phrase just in a vacuum is such a beautiful phrase that it went from being as as people aged and stopped remembering who this circus riding 
mule vigilante um, witness was just the words pig woman transformed into half pig, half woman who will kill you with an ax because it's right. vaguely associated with murder. That's always been my guess. And I have to tell you, that thought brings me so much joy that it's this weird urban legend. And then when you get to the truth of it, it's just as weird. Everything mm -hmm. about the real pig woman is as weird as any urban you, legend you could come up oh, with. Oh, I mean, her, her, her story was, it was so weird because she tells this one story about her life, but then reporters start digging in and it's very clear that like that does not align with the reality of her life, which is maybe much more mundane. And it's like at one point, it's actually like she was born... She's, her name, first of all, is not actually Jane Gibson, which is the, the, the name that she went by at the time. It appeared to be Jane Easton, and she maybe was married to this, this guy, William Easton, but he doesn't really confirm or deny that. It's just kind of weird. Um, she maybe had previous husbands. She, she maybe was born in New York City and then years later ended up in Bayonne, New Jersey, where her, where her mother and sister were living. And her sister oh, tells reporters, oh, she opened, um, uh, like, a candy store slash like chicken. I, I, it's in the book. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but she kind of had this, this like much more ordinary story and then kind of just ends up buying this farm in New Brunswick after she leaves Bayonne. So, so her, so kind of like the kind of mystique that the, that Jane Gibson created around herself didn't match the reality of, of her life. And it seemed like she had secrets and, and, you know, things that she was maybe hiding, not for nefarious purposes, but like, her, her story was just so bizarre, even in these mundane ways, you know, like, why would you, like, why did you need to create this, this myth of like running away and, and joining the circus um, in, in, in the first place, you know? Um, and, it, and I guess you wonder how much she was really just kind of like feeding on the, 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 the media frenzy and the, and the celebrity and the tension, the attention she was getting. Um, but no doubt, I mean, she was like, it was like God came down and gave these reporters, you know, like came down from heaven and just like gave this woman to, <laughs> to the newspapers because, um, you know, it, it was like, and, and to the investigators because she ultimately becomes like the, the linchpin of, of the prosecution's case, both in 1922 and again in 1926 when the case comes back after it had sort of fizzled out and gone cold. And let's talk about that because this is an incident that I'm sure you write about heavily in your new book blood and ink which i want everybody to go out there and purchase it's a, a major piece of new jersey history a major piece of looking at how true crime has taken such a foothold in modern society and it's a great well-written book uh but there's an incident that i've always loved since the moment i found out about it that i'm sure you had fun writing about which is in i believe the later trial in one of the most dramatic i mean you couldn't couldn't script it. A playwright would try to script this and be told, hey, let's take our foot off the gas. This is a little bit much. She's wheeled into the courtroom in a hospital bed to testify. And it's there's and there's photos of this. And you look at the photos and they're photos from the 1920s and you go, oh, that's a fiasco. You can just tell yeah. from a still photo what a fiasco this has turned into if it's this woman in a hospital bed being wheeled into a courtroom. That incident must have been so fun to research and write about. Yeah, and so, you know the full story is that she 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 shows up on the first day of the trial. She's not supposed to testify. Um, I guess in the past four years since the case went away, she has she's become ill. Um, it, it, it reportedly has suffering from from cancer, but maybe other things are going on. Her so this this old woman shows up also on the first day of the trial, and she's with the defense, and she starts like screaming at Jane Gibson, the pig woman, and calling her a liar, and you know don't believe anything this woman says. Turns out this is her own mother, oh jeez, um, who <laughs> who you know who came down from Bayonne. I think she was still living in, in, in Bayonne, New Jersey, and Jane Gibson collapses. It's like it's like it's all too much for her, and. Um, she goes to the hospital. They find that she is actually very unwell. She has a, some sort of blood infection. Again, it, there's reports that she's, she has cancer. Um, and the prosecution transfers her to, to, to Jersey City. And the other like side thread about this, there's so many, you know, sort of like classically 
classically Jersey things about this story, but there's also this whole angle with like the Democratic Party machine. And they were all kind of running the case in 1926 when it came back. And, you know, their home base was in Jersey City. So, of course, the prosecutor takes her to this much better hospital. She's at Jersey City. I think back then it was called Jersey City Hospital. Today, it's like, you know, there's the, this fancy apartment complex in Jersey City called the Beacon. And this, it, was, it was the old Jersey City Hospital. So she's there for like weeks and she's kind of like teetering on the edge of life and death. But the prosecutor is like, we need to get her into court. And he's like arguing with the doctors. They're saying she cannot, you know, travel to Somerville and, and go into a courtroom to testify. But they're determined to get her there. And two detectives go to her bedside one night at her hospital bed in Jersey City. And she says, I want to testify. I know I can do it. She signs a waiver to like, you know, acknowledge the risk of being transported by ambulance from Jersey City to Somerville. The next morning, she gets loaded into this ambulance with a doctor and a nurse. There's police escorts. There's like a trail of uh, journalists and cars, which back then they, they called cars machines. It's like a, a, a jargon you saw a lot. They, they, so there's all these reporters and quote machines following her. So it's almost like a parade from Jersey City to Somerville, which today, you know, I don't know, 35 minutes, 40 minutes. Yeah. Back then and traveling at this very slow pace because they, you know, uh, in, in this like old 1920s ambulance, it takes like four hours and there's people along the way, like cheering on the pig woman. It's like it's really this <laughs> crazy, like, and it's, again, it's like, it sounds like I'm making it up. Um, but they finally show up and she gets wheeled in and she gives her testimony and she is like a shell of her former self because she's sick. Like this, this gun wielding pioneer woman um, that, that people knew from, from four years earlier is kind of like pale and withered and on a hospital bed and speaking in tones like so low, she can't even muster enough strength to speak loudly. They have to transcribe the stenographer, you know, is transcribing everything and they're going to read it back to the jury. So in case they didn't hear anything she said, and um, uh, the prosecution like tears her apart. It's just, it's really, they, they, they kind of go after her credibility. Um, but at the end she's being wheeled away and she, she utters these famous words uh, from, from the Hall Mills, I, you know, the, his, the story of the Hall Mills case, this is probably one of the more famous lines from it. And she, she gets out of, leans up from her bed and she points at Francis Hall, the, who's, who's on trial. This is the, the wife of the murdered reverend who's on trial with her two brothers at this point. And she says, I know you, you I've told the truth. So help me God. And you, and you know, I've told the truth. So she's very like, even to the end, she's very determined that she, saw these murders committed that she was there that this is this is the real story and it's really up to the jury to decide you know do we believe this maybe kind of crazy woman who who is not the most credible witness or do we just totally cast her aside and 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 deal with all the other evidence they have to present with us present for us now you worked on the book for four years yeah it's uh it's not an easy thing to do to get a book from conception to publication. Why, why this case? Why now? Why did you sink your teeth into this? Because this is a big chunk of your life. Four years is a big chunk of anybody's life that you've given to a 100-year-old murder case. You know, it's funny. Like, I went, just like you, I went, I went to Rutgers um, this more than, more than 20 years ago now. But I, was, I, was, I lived in New Brunswick for four years, and I never heard of this before. I don't know if you heard about this when, when, when you were in school. I, I never I encountered it when I was there. Apparently, like a lot of people have. I've, there's actually, I've, in, in my research, I found like, you know, um, honors history theses that have been written about this by, by former students. And, and Rutgers, as I came to learn, has a, 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 a very uh, rich archive devoted to the Hall Mills case. But I never heard of it. And, you know, here we are, you know, uh, many years later, and I decide it's time to write a book. Um, a lot of I'm a journalist. There are a lot of reporters. They write books. It's you know kind of a, a, a synergy um, with with people um, who write in for newspapers or magazines. And I decided I wanted to do like an old dark historical murder case. Um, and I didn't know where I could find one that you know hadn't already had a big book about it or that was you know juicy enough to warrant a book length project. So I was, went back to not. A Ruck, one of my Rutgers professors, but a graduate school professor. I went to the Columbia Journalism School for graduate school. And there's a professor there named Andy Tucker, who um, also is from New Jersey, from central New Jersey. And uh, is just like a brilliant journalism historian, scholar. And I had taken some of her history courses where we studied old newspaper cases, newspaper crimes from the um, 
19th century and whatnot. So I knew she'd have some ideas. So we're just talking and she's like rattling off all these different cases. And then at one point she says, Oh, there's the Hall Mills case was a great one. And I just like, I just thought it had such a good ring to it immediately. The Hall, Hall Mills, you know? And then she said down in New Brunswick. And I was just like, Whoa, you know, like, like the record scratch. I was, you know, it was like my ears immediately perked up. Um, and she starts telling me about it. And it was just like, it just sounded so fascinating. Um, and we were also in the same conversation talking about in this time period, the 1920s, the emergence of the tabloids in New York City and like how outrageous they were and how over the top. And so I had these like two, I left that conversation with these two threads that I just, I felt like that was, a, you know, a book length project. And that's how, that's how it started for me. But since I had such a connection to New Brunswick and, you know, I knew the area so well from having gone to school and, and lived there, it just, it felt like you know this was a, a story for me to tell um and it just takes that long you know four years it kind of takes that long to write to write a, for a book to go from conception to publication especially one that's like really research intensive like this but it's kind of the fact that the book came out on september 13th of, of this year the murders so september 13th 1922 was my publication date the murders occurred september 14th uh, did I say 1922? My book came out in the year 2022, obviously. September it would be 30th. amazing if you were still dedicated to promoting it. 2022. September 14th, 1922 was, was the year, was, was when the murders took place. So literally the book came out almost a day to the hundredth anniversary of, of the murders. And that was kind of just like a lucky coincidence because, you know, we were going to publish earlier in the year, the, but the pandemic, you know, everything gets pushed back and, it just lined up really, really nicely. So it, it hit the centenary of this crime. And um, I, I think captured a moment where, you know, people who are familiar with the story were already kind of like looking to this, this date, this milestone um, with, some, with some renewed interest. There was an amazing um, play that a theater company in New Brunswick put on inside the actual church where all this went down that also came back for the hundredth anniversary of the crime. Um, so yeah, it was it, the, the, the timing, I think, it just like, I think I was meant to, to write this book. <laughs> the book is Blood and Ink. If you love New Jersey, which if you're listening to this podcast, I imagine you will, you're going to want to have a copy on your shelf. If you like true crime, as so many of us do these days, it's going to be right there. Holidays are coming up, everybody. Perfect gift for the Jersey loving true crime enthusiast in your life. I want to plug it really hard. Joe, we were at New Brunswick at the same time when we're not thinking murder. I have to imagine because I graduated O2. When did you graduate? So, oh, uh, oh, four. Oh, so we had some crossover there. Yeah. Where, where, where did you live? What, what, uh, what streets did you live on? I was ha Hamilton, Somerset and Hartwell. Those yeah. So I lived on Hamilton. I lived on Hamilton for two years. I lived on Bartlett street one year, but then, um, Hamilton street across from the Allen, Witch. I lived there for two years. Oh, I've spent many an evening um, at the Allen, Witch. I was across from Tata's pizza. Okay, yeah. So that's a couple blocks. You're, that's, yeah. that's like the corner of Plum Street, I, I think. It is. It is. Some of the worst times of my life were sent, spent right there at the corner of Plum and Hamilton. Yeah. Just true, true depression that I look back on sort of fondly and sort of wary. Yeah. But, and, but you know, for me, Ground Zero back then was like, I mean, McCormick's was where all the, the, the kids I oh, hung yeah. out with were at McCormick's oh, and yeah. the Court Tavern, um, you know, because I was like kind of heavily immersed in, in the kind of, um, the, the, you know, punk rock crowd, um, at Rutgers. And, uh, you know, so those were kind of like the, the those were the haunts back then with McCormick's and the court tavern. And you're speaking yeah. my language. Do you think it's sad that, um, future generations of Rutgers kids will not actually know the real meaning of the phrase grease trucks? I, I knew you were going there with that. Um, yeah, I think, even before I went to Rutgers, I mean, I, I, you know, like heard about the grease trucks. It's almost like they, that must've, is that in weird New Jersey at all? Is that like weird enough? It's not like dark enough, I guess, but it's, it's I'm sure I know. I'm, I once found out that there was a place on the campus of Ohio state selling fat sandwiches and claiming to have invented them. So I wrote an article just basically saying, nah, fuck that. No. Come yeah. On. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know if you've been back to New Brunswick in you know anytime recently but it's like unrecognizable and i think where the grease trucks are now it's just like it's like a boardwalk or something it's like a fancy yeah, sort it's of like fancy. Boardwalk. and you can walk the entire length of george street now and feel safe the whole time yeah that's wild back back then um no. but uh yeah you know i guess the fat sandwiches i guess they, they live on in, in the different um eastern avenue sort of sort of eateries but um the whole the whole place looks totally different 
to me. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that uh, drunk kids at three in the morning won't have a man shouting the words "no rabbit food, extra pussy juice" at them as they drank gallons of malt liquor and don't know how to process this? I, you know, I feel like, and you know, depriving you know drunk undergrads of a four dollar sandwich at at, at three a.m. I guess that's not you know that's not a no one wants that. (laughs) But um, you know, when did they even go away? It was it's been like a while now. It has. Um, it's been a few years. Been a but few even, years. I think they were around in recent enough times. Like, you know, my, my wife was kind of like, you know, she went to like uh, Smith College, this, you know, elite New England sort of um, mm-hmm. much smaller private school. So something like the, the grease truck scene was like totally foreign and, and bizarre to her. And I think at some point we were down there, like maybe 2008, we, and we, it was probably the last time I had a grease truck sandwich. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't as, as good as I, as I remember, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say. Something about um, yeah. adulthood and responsibility makes those yeah. taste worse. Yeah, as probably many things you you know look back of, of, from your college days, I guess. Indeed. I like, I like, so you had, like Smith College, I'm sure it was more beautiful than this, but could you stand in a parking lot getting shouted at by guys in trucks? Could you go see screaming females in a weird basement with a whole bunch of people? You know, it's funny about, you mentioned that, so screaming females was like way after my, my time, but they filmed a video in my old house, like in the basement. Um, Whoa. It was like, I guess like the, I, I don't know them too well, but I think it was like the song that they, they broke out with. And they lived in like my old house, which had become this like new, the next generation's like hotspot show scene. But in, in that house, I had left, like, you know, when like, you go to college, your parents, like, they, they give you their old kitchen table and chairs or whatever. And like you, your, your houses become this amalgamation of like you and your friends, all their like families, different pieces of throwaway furniture. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd have left behind like some of that at this house and like I saw like the old kitchen chairs were still there in this music video for, for screaming females. So it was like, I'm watching this video and I'm looking at like this kitchen chair that like I sat at when I was like in elementary school or or something. So it was really, really, really bizarre. How strange for you. I mean, that's the scoop. That's the real scoop of this interview that your chairs are in a screamers video. Yeah. That's a hell of a scoop. Right I'll send there. you, I'll send you the video after, um, after <laughs> we're, we're, we're offline. I got what um, these chairs look like. But the other thing about Rutgers too is, is, uh, and this, you know, going back to your like com, com, contrasting it with a place like Smith college, the, 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 the Douglas campus, you know, mm-hmm. we should talk about this. It com- it's, relates to the book, all those beautiful bread brick buildings that, that you know, the Douglas is, it, it is kind of like a, you know, it, it kind of looks, it has a Smith college feel to it. It looks more it. like a college, whereas the college yeah. side looks more like a city. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. leafy. It's green. It has these beautiful old stately buildings that are all like faculty buildings. Those actually were the homes of the family that's at the center of this book, which is, which is Francis Hall and, and, and the Reverend Hall and all of her cousins, which was the Carpenter family. So like, there's all these buildings that are at Rutgers on the Douglas campus, which is like Carpenter Hall. That was, that was once the home of one of the carpenters um, who, who were the rich family at the center of, of the Hall Mills case. And I, I didn't know that um, the, the, the mansion where the minister and Francis Hall lived for years now has been the residence of the dean of, of Douglas College, which I guess now is, is the Douglas Residential College. Um, but it's still there. I went, I went inside and it looks much today like it, like it did back then. So that whole like side of town, um, it actually has this this history that's totally wrapped up in 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 this story in the case. I love knowing that too, and I think for all our listeners to keep in mind, like, uh, how would I phrase it? You're going to read about things where you've walked those streets as yeah. you're laying out where these things took place. I know exactly where you're talking about. I know the exact types of buildings on the Douglas campus, Hamilton Street, Easton Ave. I think it's a rite of passage where I think a lot of Jersey people. If you, even if you don't go to Rutgers, you wind up partying there a little bit in New Brunswick in your late teens up through your mid-20s. You've walked these streets, you've seen these buildings, and all the stuff that you're talking about is about people who are long gone. But these places and these and these memories are still very much right there on the surface. And it's a hell of a thing you did. And I'm so glad that someone has chronicled one of New Jersey's great true crime mysteries 
Uh, I'm glad that you've gotten all the lunacy down on paper, Chronicles Forever. Blood and Ink is the name of the book. You can buy it, I'm sure, where all the places where books are sold. Are there are there any that benefit you more as an author than others? Is there, are there any places you'd like to encourage? I always like to tell people there's a lot of great local bookstores in New Jersey. And uh, while Amazon might mail it to your front door six hours after you order it, there's something to be said, too, for supporting the local guys. I'll put that out there. Yeah, I know I'd be happy. I'd love for people to buy it at their at their local bookstores. New Brunswick actually doesn't have really um uh I don't I don't know if they have like a I think there's a very small sort of bookstore that's open and then there's a Rutgers, Barnes and Noble. Um so if you live in New Brunswick, maybe go to one of those two places, but you know, your local bookstore anywhere you want to buy the book is it benefits the author, I think. So um I'd be happy for you know, anyone to pick it up where they feel most comfortable putting their money. Thank you, Joe, so much for taking the time. Blood and Ink is the book. Everybody get out there and get it and uh, sink your teeth into even more details about one of the most miraculous murder cases of all time with tons of Jersey references. And then you go, you buy a fat sandwich, you walk around Douglas, you see where it all took place. We'll to do a walking tour sometime. Uh, oh. we could do like a live show. Maybe we could uh, you know, bring people along. And, and would you? Yeah, I would do it. There was a guy a few years ago who, who was doing that. So I don't want to like steal his um, idea. I talked to him for the book he's, he's mentioned in there, but um, I think that it, that's uh, an experience that everyone should have if they're interested in this story, going to see these places. So let's so talk about take, it. You'll be like, this is where the pig woman got on the mule. This yeah, is where they found the maggots in the scarf. Here's the building where this person used to live with his wife who didn't know that he was deceiving her this whole time. We can go do the walking tour. Yeah, maybe it's kind of scattered. Might have to like rent a trolley or something and, and do a, okay. a one of those old fashioned <laughs> trolley. Tours. I would love that. I would but, love um, that. Yeah, let's let's think about it. Okay, I'm into it. All right, thanks. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was, it was oh, thrilled to, thrilled to talk about this. Absolute pleasure. Congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the world. New Jersey is the world is Chris Gethard, Nikki Bonaduce. Don Finelli, Andrea Quinn, Carson Kopp, and Mike D. New Jersey is the World is produced and edited by Carson Kopp, Mike D., and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973 780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at belowthecollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World, where New Jersey is the world.